Well, it is a pleasure to be here among you. Uh, my uh, maternal grandparents are from Quebec. My paternal great-grandparents are from Quebec. So uh, I've returned, though not Quebec. But uh, I did go to Montreal, so that was fine, too. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. As I said, the worship was lovely. I feel right at home here among Christian brothers and sisters. I want to begin with a text from uh, Galatians 2, 19 to 20, which is one of the great texts in Paul's letters. It's meant to summarize some major theses to come in the letter, in which Paul says that I, through the law, have died in relation to the law. That is, the law showed me that I couldn't possibly make it uh, through my own ability into God's good graces. So the law showed me my knowledge, gave me a knowledge of sin, and therefore it drove me to the grace of God. For what purpose, he said? In order that I might live for God. Isn't that interesting? The knowledge that I can't make it on my own ability, on my own personal merit, is not thereby to give me a pass to do whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it with. But rather, all of this serves the ultimate purpose of living for God. I've been crucified with Christ, he said. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me enough to hand himself over to death on my behalf. That's the whole of the Christian life in summary, right? Paul is so utterly convinced that Jesus loves him. How does he know that Jesus loves him? Jesus gave his very life for him. Pretty hard to get more convincing proof than that of how much Jesus loves us. And because Jesus loves him to that magnitude, he is able to put aside a life that is oriented towards serving his self and his own innate desires. He would rather have Jesus live in him than live life for himself to do what he wants to do. And so how does he do that? He lives, he says, a life of faith, which is not merely an intellectual assent to the truth, but is a holistic life reorientation in accordance with the message of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So he orients his life completely to this knowledge and says yes to Jesus and no to self whenever self conflicts with the movement of Christ in him. He no longer lives. Christ lives in him. How does Christ live in him? Christ lives in him through the power of his spirit, which he projects into the hearts of those who believe him. So that to be in Christ is to be under the controlling influence of Christ's spirit in one's life. So in effect, the breathing that we do as believers is on the basis of faith putting our trust in the one who gave all on our behalf, saying yes to him, no to self, when self conflicts with that one. That's the kind of God we serve. God is not interested in a little mild reform of our life. 
That's why death is a key metaphor for Christian discipleship. Because God's not interested in that little tinkering. I'll let you do this little aspect of my life. I'll let you work on, Lord. I'll open up the door to that part of my life. But the rest of it, sorry, I'll let you know when I need you. It's not the way it works in the Christian life. In the Christian life, it rather God wants the whole of us. He wants the totality of our very existence in order that he might be the reigning, controlling influence in our life. Another great text in Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Always, Paul says, I am carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus might likewise be manifested in my flesh. See that inverse relationship that exists? John the Baptist says it well in John 3. I must decrease so that he will increase. To the extent that we live our lives for ourselves is the extent to which we do not have the power of Jesus operating in us. Right? Now, maybe this isn't the Dale Carnegie School of How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, enormous demand is being made on our life. Nothing less than losing our lives, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and coming to follow Jesus. Does that offend you? It should. It offends me when I think about the demand that's being made, but then when I compare that demand to what Jesus has done on my behalf and the power, the resurrection life that operates in him and now in those who believe in him, it is all worth it. It's a great cause. If you're not offended, it's because you don't realize the great magnitude of the cost that's being placed in our life. It is a great cause. And yet, since this is the pearl of a great price that's worth everything, who cares what the cost is? Okay, that's the Christian life. And I have to say that way by way of preface because sometimes we think the gospel makes too great a demand. And it does, but except for the fact that Jesus is worth it. Okay, let's see if this will actually advance a slide. Okay? So far, it's doing nothing. Okay, what do I have to do? Am I pointing it in the wrong direction behind me? How do I advance it? See, technology can't live without it, can't shoot it. What do you do? I once saw this uh, picture, this is, this is many decades ago when I was at uh, Harvard Divinity School, before they had all the great technology now. They just had this picture, a cartoon, next to the uh, Xerox machine, and the cartoon says, get away from there, Johnny. Johnny's like this, you know, one guy's protecting the, the Xerox machine because the other guy wants to shoot it. I can't stand it. It's not doing what I want it to do. All right, what should I do? You have an alternative for me. What I want to talk initially about is the church's, what I call hermeneutical scales. Thank you. Okay, let's see if this will do it. It does. Oh, good. Wonderful. Go back. Go forward. What's that? <laughs> okay. Welcome to chapel. Okay, it's going too fast. Don't click too much. Okay, it takes a while there. <laughs> I am weak, Lord. Help me. <laughs> All right, how do we determine uh, how to apply Scripture for our own current context? That's what we mean by hermeneutics. 
interpreting the biblical text for our current cultural context. Typically, there's been a scale in which the church operates, starting with, of course, Scripture, ultimately determines what we ought to be doing. And Scripture isn't just number one in relation to other things. We have a two and a three and a four following. But it's head and shoulders over everything else. And the degree to which an element in Scripture can be regarded as a core value in Scripture, the degree to which a particular value uh, is pervasively held in the canon of Scripture, strongly held in the canon of Scripture, uh, absolutely held without any exceptions, and counterculturally held in relation to the larger context, determines whether or not it is a core value. And the more something is a core value, the less wiggle room we have as Christians for moving away from it. After Scripture, then we might talk about philosophic reason, nature argument, uh, the way in which God has constructed us in this issue on homosexuality as male and female. Scientific reason could be brought in to look at disproportionately high rates of measurable harm that attends male and female homosexual unions, but in differences between male and female homosexual unions that reflects differences in gender. And then finally, experience. Not because experience, we don't put experience last because it's not important, we put it last because experience is not self-interpreting. Rather, you have to interpret experience based on these other lenses that we've already mentioned, scripture and philosophic reason and scientific reason. We could also throw in here, incidentally, the tradition of the church, I suppose. Uh, this is my own modified Wesleyan quadrilateral for a Wesleyan context here. Uh, and, uh, but tradition just confirms what scripture says for the last 2,000 years. So you can read that in line with the element of Scripture. Instead, what we have now in many mainline denominations in America and uh, probably in Church of Canada, I'm guessing, is uh, an inverted revisionist scale in which instead of adopting the order, the traditional order, we now have inverted that to have experience at the top as though it were self-interpreting, followed by scientific reason, followed by philosophic reason and nature argument, born that way, allegedly, followed by scripture last. And when scripture comes last, scripture really has no place. It's simply a cipher for your own ideology, which you impute into scripture to make scripture say what you want it to say, rather than actually listening to what scripture says. So imagine, if you will, if you want to play a card game, and one team says, okay, this will be the order the priority of trumps. We'll put uh, spades as the top trump, followed by clubs, followed by diamonds, followed by hearts. And the team that you're playing with says, okay, well, that's nice, but we're going to reverse that. We're going to have the hearts be the top trump, followed by diamonds, followed by clubs, followed by spades. Now try to play the game. You can't play it because one person throws down a spade, ah, top trump. The other person throws down a heart, says, top trump. Okay, well, you don't agree. If you don't agree about what has a priority in terms of determining the will of God for God's people, then you're not going to come out at the same point. And that's the problem we have with the church today in a nutshell. Augustine gives us a nice, St. Augustine gives us a nice little quote to think about. Uh, I, uh, when my first book came out many years ago, 
uh, Walter Wink did a review of it for Christian Century. Walter Wink, a New Testament scholar, uh, in which he had this nice title to the review, To Hell with Gays. Thank you very much for that, Walter. It was a very nasty kind of uh, review, and he said at one point, it's too bad that Gagnon doesn't agree with Augustine's dictum, love and do what you want. Because if he did, then he'd realize two people of the same sex could love one another, and as long as they love one another, they can do what they want. Now, I'm not an expert in patristics. Did anything happen after 100 AD? I'm not sure. But uh, I know enough about patristics and the church fathers to know that Augustine couldn't possibly have said anything that would be serviceable to the point that Walter Wink was making of it. So I looked up the context for this line, which appears in Augustine's homilies on the first epistle of John. And the example that he gives is, let's take this picture of a, a two people, uh, two groups of people. One is a man who is hugging a child, and another scene is a man who is hitting a child. Which one is loving? Well, initially you would say, of course, the man who is hugging a child is the one that's loving. Augustine says, let me give you some more information now. The man who is hugging the child is a pederast. He's sexually attracted to the child. And the man that, as you thought, was hitting the child is simply a father in control disciplining his child. Let me ask you the question again, which one is loving? And according to Augustine, the man who is disciplining his child is loving, not the pederast who is hugging his child. And Augustine goes on and he says, if any of you perhaps wish to maintain love, brethren, above all things, do not imagine love to be an abject and sluggish thing, nor that love is to be preserved by a sort of gentleness, Nay, not gentleness, but tameness and listlessness. It's just this kind of love that you're talking about that doesn't do the rigorous work of calling people to the kingdom of God by any means necessary is just moral laziness. Not so is love preserved. Do not imagine that you then love your son when you do not give him discipline or that you then love your neighbor when you do not rebuke him. This is not love. It's mere feebleness. Let love be fervent to correct, to amend. Love not in the person his error, but the person. For the person God made, the error the person himself made. Isn't that beautiful? I've always thanked Walter Wink ever since for giving me that quote and that context, meaning that you can even implement discipline in love if it's used as a means to turn someone away from sin. That's what it means when you say love and do what you want. The exact, exact antithesis of the way that Wink was using it. All right. The witness of Jesus. Silence of the Lamb. A little cinematic echo for you there. Did Jesus say anything about homosexual practice? Well, in a way, yes, I would argue. The key Jesus sex text is in Mark 10, parallel in Matthew 19. The Pharisees approached Jesus about a question concerning divorce. And Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed to write a certificate of divorce and to divorce. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. 
But Jesus said to them, with a view to your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this command. That's an interesting little hermeneutical principle there because what it suggests is that Jesus, didn't, Jesus did think, yeah, there are some things in the Old Testament that we no longer follow anymore. But I want you to look at the direction in which Jesus is going. It's not towards greater license with regard to sexual ethics, but greater rigor, greater demand. In other words, Moses once gave you men a pass to have more than one sex partner concurrently and a unilateral right of divorce for almost any cause. I'm, in effect, Jesus said, now closing that loophole. Also an interesting point here about Christology. Jesus thought he could unilaterally amend the Constitution of Israel given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai without asking anybody else's opinion of the matter, right? Try to unilaterally amend the Constitution of Canada. I'm sure they have a nice, wonderful padded cell for you to inhabit for a while, all right? You just don't get to do that. Jesus thought he could amend something given by God to Moses at Sinai unilaterally. That's why he says, incidentally, amen, amen, I say to you, or some single amen, which is usually translated truly. It's usually a response to something that people say. But in the unique way in which Jesus used it, he was effectively saying, I don't need anybody's confirming response to what I say. Simply by virtue of the fact that I say it, it is so. That's radical in the ancient world in Judaism because you are able to provide some sort of confirmation for what you say by authorizing it through appeal to prior authorities. And the earlier you could bring it back, the greater the appeal. It's not like our culture, newer is better. On the contrary, older is better. The greater the pedigree to what you have to say, the more likely it is to be a true statement. And Jesus, in effect, said, I don't have to appeal to anybody simply because, I guess you have that prerogative when you're the son of God, right? Which is none of us, by the way. But from the beginning of creation, male and female, God made them, citing Genesis, just one-third of Genesis 1.27 here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, citing Genesis 2.24. Back to back. That means that the for this reason of Genesis 2.24 is basically given its reason in that one-third of Genesis 1.27. Why is it that a man may become joined to a woman and the two become one flesh? Because God deliberately designed in creation male and female as sexual counterparts or complements to each other. They're specifically designed for sexual pairing, they and they alone. And for that reason, they may become joined into one flesh. What then God has yoked together, let no man separate. Now, who has yoked them together? Merely human society, culture. We get to do with, tinker with marriage uh, at our own will, not according to Jesus. Um, Jesus basically declared Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 to be normative for defining all sexual behavior. And by normative, we don't just mean what's normal, but what you are prescribed to do with prescriptive implications, prohibitions are entailed if you do otherwise. Ah, the clicking. There we go. Then I click too hard and then it goes back. 
So obviously, I am click challenged. Marriage is, according to Jesus, an institution ordained by the Creator between one man and one woman in a lifelong, indissoluble union. That's Jesus' view. That's our Lord. Presumably, we should obey what he says. Jesus emphasized in this context the two-ness of the sexual bond, the two becoming one. In effect, he prohibits a revolving door of divorce and remarriage for any cause, and implicitly polygamy. He doesn't have to talk about polygamy, more specifically polygyny, multiple wives, directly in the context, because the more difficult thing to prohibit is remarriage after divorce, right? Look at our own society. We don't prohibit remarriage after divorce, but we do prohibit multiple partner concurrent unions, multiple partner unions, polygamy. We don't allow that. Why is that the case? Because we view polygamy as being worse than a serial form of polygamy. A concurrent form of polygamy is worse. So we don't argue because we have some allowance for remarriage after divorce that therefore we should then allow polygamy. We never moved in that direction, at least, well, we are now beginning to move in that direction culturally to think about it. Previously, we never moved in that direction. And the reason why is you can't move from some degree of license in a given offense to license in a greater offense. You can only move from something to get from a given offense to a lesser offense. For a given offense, you'd have to have some additional reasons to allow it. Now, the question is, where does Jesus fixate on this number two? I mean, he's arguing basically with regard to remarriage after divorce or implicitly polygamy, and more specifically polygyny, that uh, if you have sex with another person other than your current or previous spouse, you're committing adultery because so far as God is concerned, your original marriage is still intact. Now, by the way, you can't kill your spouse in order to get the license to remarry or commit polygamy. I guess polygamy would no longer be in place if you kill your spouse. That's a greater offense. So you can't move again to the greater offenses uh, because you have a license in a lesser offense. So where does Jesus get this number two? He gets it from the two-ness of the sexes itself. Male and female that God has deliberately designed in creation becomes the foundation for the two-ness of the sexual bond. That is limiting the number of partners in a sexual union to two, right? Basically what Jesus is saying is when you bring together the two halves of the sexual spectrum, male and female, and you unite them, you've recreated an integrated sexual whole, right? The two halves unite into a single whole. A third party then becomes neither necessary nor desirable because you've already brought together the totality of the sexual spectrum. Now, we know that this is Jesus' argument because we have a parallel from the Essenes at Qumran. The Essenes were a very rigorous sectarian group in early Judaism. They were so rigorous that they thought that the Pharisees were wimps when it came to observing the law of Moses. That's right, the Pharisees were not rigorous enough. Is that the picture you get of the Pharisees in the Gospels? Jesus is constantly complaining the Pharisees don't have a rigorous demand. No, he's not complaining about that. Although Jesus' demand in sexual ethics is more rigorous than that of the Pharisees. 
Isn't that interesting? The problem with the Pharisees is not that they have a rigorous demand. Uh, There's two problems with the Pharisees. One is that they major in some minors, so they don't have the uh, priorities right in terms of when there are conflicting commands taking place. Uh, But more importantly, they don't reach out aggressively in love to the biggest violators of the demand. That's the big problem with the Pharisees, whereas Jesus does reach out to them. The Essenes uh, noted that we have in one text called the Damascus Covenant, that taking two wives in their lives uh, is forbidden, they argue, because, quote, the foundation of creation is male and female, God created them. Citing the same one-third of Genesis 127 that Jesus would cite a century later. And then they added another text from Genesis 7-9. And because, quote, those who entered Noah's Ark went in two by two. Now, why do they cite that text? They cite that text because that line, male and female, in Hebrew, zakah unakevah, elsewhere in the entire Hebrew Bible, only appears in the genealogy statement in Genesis 5, 1-2, which basically restates Genesis 1, and otherwise only in the Noah's Ark narratives. They went in the ark, male and female, two by two. And it's their way of confirming that there's a sort of self-contained two-ness about the sexes. Uh, and, uh, and so, but Qumran, now they never went as far as prohibiting remarriage after divorce. They only prohibited polygamy. Jesus went further than they did, extending uh, the demand of God to a form of serial polygamy, meaning that Jesus was more rigorous than the most rigorous sectarian group in early Judaism, and thus in the Greco-Roman Mediterranean basin when it came to sexual ethics. How about that for a picture that implodes the usual misunderstanding of who Jesus is? Now, there are three corollaries that follow from Jesus' back-to-creation model. I'm only going to give you one here, and that is that homosexual relationships are worse than polygamous ones, right? So sometimes we get a slippery slope argument that says, you know, if we concede on the issue of homosexual practice, then we might get something worse that is multiple partner unions. In Jesus' view, this would not be the something worse. The something worse we already get. That is the affirmation of homoerotic unions. Why is that worse? Because that impinges directly on the foundation of creation, right? Again, note that phrase that the Essenes used. The foundation of creation is male and female, he made them. That's the operating principle that Jesus is using when he applies that principle now to the issue of remarriage after divorce. The foundation of creation is male and female, God designed us for sexual pairing. When we say that there is no male-female requirement for sexual ethics, we are directly assaulting that foundation. So something that Jesus himself regarded as foundational for all sexual ethics, the church now considers getting rid of. Now that's pretty serious. Jesus says, this is the foundation of sexual ethics, and we say, we don't care, we're going to change it. In what sense would Jesus continue to be Lord of his church? Well, he would continue to be Lord of his church. 
But those who classify themselves as being in the church, that would be another issue. For that, we would go to the text in Revelations 2-3, where the risen Christ warns about taking away the lampstand for those who persist in porneia, sexual immorality. Okay, many other principles that we can learn from Jesus. Uh, Jesus had a sexual ethic distinctive to his interpretation of the love commandment. Uh, that is, Jesus told us to love everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. He took the commandment in Leviticus 19.18, and he defined neighbor, if we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, as anyone with whom you might come into contact with, including your enemy. And if that's hard for you, if it's hard for you to love your enemy, just think about yourself, he says, lying half dead by the side of the road. And the only thing standing between you and life is your enemy who walks by and who could possibly make himself your friend in your hour of need. Okay? Now, so in other words, Jesus' interpretation of the love commandment is he universalizes it. Everyone with whom you come into contact. Now, let's see. Walter Wink, again, to bring up that name, once argued that, again, Gagnon doesn't realize that uh, there is no distinctive sex ethic in Scripture, only sexual mores or customs which then are critiqued by the love command. If you apply the love commandment to sexual ethics, how many people should you have sex with? Everybody with whom you come into contact. Now, try that out with your spouse if you're married, and then duck uh, because the frying pan will be coming your way. Um, you're not going to be surviving much longer after that point. That kind of reasoning doesn't really last. Man, if you try that on your wives, uh, you're a dead duck. Uh, just immediately repent, get on your face on the floor, and beg for forgiveness. Because that's not an improper interpretation of Jesus' sexual ethic. Jesus' sexual ethic means one other partner lifetime. That's it. That's Jesus' interpretation of sexual ethics. That's diametrically opposed to the love commandment, which is to love everyone with whom you come into contact. And the reason why it's different is because sexual ethics also has a series of prerequisites in play that you can't simply deduce by importing the love commandment, right? I love my siblings, but if I have sex with them, that's incest. I love my children. If I have sex with them, that's incest and pedophilia, okay? These things are bad, not good things, okay? I go to church. I love other members of the church. I have sex with all of them. That's polyamory. That's a bad thing, okay? Not a good thing, okay? So there is a distinctive sex ethic. And Jesus added a strong interior component to sexual ethics, right? We know about the adultery of the heart statement. So we don't even get a pass, uh, man, I'll make this point particularly to you. Um, you don't even get a pass for what you're thinking in your interior life. Even in that, what you think, God wants to be in control of that, right? This is where you apply the statement about repenting seven times a day if you have to, right? And then he follows it up with, uh, oh, not in that statement, but another text, about the food issue. Is food like sex? No. It's not the food that you ingest that defiles you. It's the carrying out of desires from within to do what God expressly forbids. And he includes in that text in Mark 7 sexually immoral acts, adulterous acts, lack of sexual self-restraint, also gay. Okay? So Jesus clearly regarded sexual impulses as part of those things that can defile you holistically if you engage in them. 
Uh, Jesus thought that sexual ethics was a life and death matter. Uh, and again, back at a little bit here. Uh, he said, if your hand, eye, or foot should threaten your downfall, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell full-bodied. That statement occurs between his adultery of the heart statement in Matthew 5 and his statement about divorce-free marriage. So it certainly includes issues of sexual purity. What about the woman caught in adultery? Doesn't Jesus indicate there that sexual offenses are no big deal? On the contrary, the exact opposite. Uh, Jesus does say, right, don't stone the woman. Now, here's where you have to know the difference between uh, taking the text literally or taking it metaphorically. Uh, Jesus does not mean stoning here in a metaphorical sense, as if to have a judgmental attitude towards adultery is wrong. That's an improper interpretation because we know Jesus himself was opposed to adultery, okay? He upheld the Decalogue and, in fact, even extended the command of adultery into your interior life, okay? So Jesus was a very big proponent of not committing adultery. And yet he said, don't stone the woman. Why? Very simply, dead people don't repent. That's what it comes down to. Dead people don't repent. And if you stone the woman, you foreclose any opportunity for repentance on her part. And I want to create every opportunity for the woman to repent. Why? He says, go and from now on no longer be sinning. Okay, what does that mean? Well, clearly means stop the adultery. But what, what's implied by that? Well, if we go to John 5, 14, Jesus makes a similar statement. No longer be sinning. And then follows it up with, lest something worse happen to you. What would be the something worse? The something worse in the context of John 5 is not inheriting eternal life. Being excluded from the kingdom of God. That's the something worse. You see what's at stake here for the woman caught in adultery? It's not merely a capital sentencing in this life. It's not having a place in God's presence for eternity. So adultery is more serious than you think, he says, in effect. And so I want to extend every last opportunity for this woman to repent so that he won't, she won't be excluded from the kingdom. Jesus' outreach to tax collectors makes this point also. Anyone think that Jesus was soft on economic exploitation of the poor? Right? No, nobody argues that. Not even the Jesus seminar argues that. Nobody argues that. Uh, Jesus actually ratcheted up the demand of God we see in the prophets uh, for proper use of material possessions in relation to the poor. And yet he's aggressively reaching out to the tax collectors who are the biggest violators of that demand. The tax collectors have a justly deserved reputation for charging several times over what they were supposed to collect and then pocketing it for themselves to personally profit. How would you feel about such a tax collector, a fellow Jew, coming to your house in the mid-first century Palestine and extorting from you several times more than you knew that that tax collector was supposed to collect, and now you don't have enough food to feed your family? How are you going to feel about that tax collector? Very badly, I'm sure. And yet that's the person that Jesus is reaching out to. Not because that tax collector is not at risk of inheriting the kingdom. On the contrary, he's at greatest risk of being excluded. And so Jesus reaches out to him. Does that suggest to you with the parallel outreach to sexual sinners that Jesus thinks that sexual sin doesn't matter? On the contrary, it suggests that sexual sin, like economic exploitation, can get you excluded from the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus reaches out to such persons in order to reclaim them. The Pharisees could not get their theological imaginations around the point that you can both intensify the demand of God on the one hand and aggressively reach out in love to the biggest violators of that demand on the other hand. And yet that's what Jesus did. We think in our own cultural context that we have to lower the severity of the offense in order to love the offender. We think that there's an inverse relationship. There isn't. Jesus maintained both, right? If the Titanic is going down, forget about the people who are already on the lifeboats. You have to reach out to the people who are still on the Titanic and need to get on the lifeboats. That's what Jesus did in reaching out to sexual sinners and economic exploiters, is reaching out to those at greatest risk of being excluded from the very kingdom that he proclaims. Jesus and the love commandment. What is the context for love your neighbor as yourself? Leviticus 19, 18, second half of the verse. Took me a long time to realize, get a doctorate, finally realize it's Leviticus 19, 17 and 18a. How about that? That's the context. What does that text say? You shall not hate your neighbor. You shall not take revenge against your neighbor. You shall not hold a grudge against your neighbor. And if your neighbor does wrong, you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur guilt for failing to warn them. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see how reproof is part of a full-orbed understanding of what love is? That if you don't reproof your neighbor when your neighbor is doing wrong, and you allow them to engage in behavior that leads to their destruction in relation to God, that you do not love them? And we know that Jesus is appealing to that because later in Luke 17, he makes an appeal to the necessity of rebuke. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. See the critical element of repentance. Even if he sins seven times a day. Imagine that. Imagine if your spouse committed adultery seven times a day in one day and then came back to you and said, don't worry, honey, I repent. I think we're still going to have a long conversation here. Because I'm not sure I accept the sincerity of a confession of repentance after such numerous offenses, repetitive offenses. And yet Jesus said we have to have, we're so gracious that you can have this sort of holy gullibility about accepting the genuineness of a confession of repentance after some ridiculously number of offenses. That's how gracious the kingdom of God is, but the repentance is critical, which is why Mark summarizes the whole of Jesus' message. When Jesus comes out, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent is the critical feature of it. Jesus defined discipleship, as we noted, as taking up your cross, denying yourself, losing your life, and coming to follow him. Um, I didn't make one other point about the other one. I do want to make in closing. Uh, we're not going to get to Paul here today, so we'll just have to try to squeeze that in in some other elements. Um, I think it's most important to get to Jesus because people often say about Paul, well, that's just Paul. I follow Jesus, as if there's a wedge between Paul and Jesus on this issue, which is absurd. Jesus is actually a great disciple. Uh, Paul is actually a great disciple of Jesus at this point. He actually takes the very same two texts, Genesis 127 and 224, and has them in the background of his two major prohibitions of homosexual practice. Exactly what Jesus wanted people to do is to apply those texts to all issues of sexual ethics, which is what Paul does and comes to the obvious conclusion. Obviously, if Jesus thinks there's a male-female requirement for sexual ethics, he doesn't agree with homosexual practice. 
because that violates the requirement. So that issue is already solved. I want to talk about the prodigal son and close on that. When I became a Christian at the age of 17 and I read the parable of the lost son, I had a big problem with it. And I had a big problem with it because I grew up as a, my parents were Catholic, I'm still Catholic today, uh, nominal Catholic, but Catholic nonetheless. My mother had five children in five years. How about that? Isn't that amazing? Five in five years. And I was the upper middle class, third or fifth, and the fifth child had a very hard time of it going to school because she had the reputation of the other four of us preceding her in school. So as she hit junior high school, she had to identify, make a niche for herself in terms of her own self-identity, and so she rebelled. And for her, rebellion meant getting involved with the wrong crowd, lots of expletives at home, substance abuse, taking on smoking, taking on drugs, and there was great turmoil in our home that developed. And I developed this hatred for my younger sister as her older brother because of what she was doing to my family. At some point, she ran away from home at the age of 14. And I thought, I'm ashamed to say, my initial impulse was good riddance. Now we'll finally have peace at home. Then I would wake up every morning to hear my father wailing. Not knowing where his youngest daughter was. And of course, my mother would lose it at that point. And for three months, that's how I would go to school. Hearing my parents, I thought they were going to crack up. My sister was brought back three months later from many states south by police. And when she came home, as far as I was concerned, she was dead. I wanted nothing to do with her because I saw what she did to my parents. And I saw the suffering and the agony that they went through because of her behavior. When I became a Christian two years after that and read this parable, the parable of the lost son, about how the lost son had spent half his father's inheritance, as you know, and then something got his attention. Something remarkable happened that got his attention. He ran out of money, and he began eating with the pigs, and that will get your attention. And he realized that he was no longer worthy to be even called his father's son because of what he had done. And he returns. See, I won't even ask to be treated as a son. Just treat me as a hired help, and it will be enough. That's repentance. Return is a metaphor for repentance. And his affect about recognizing he's not worthy to be called his son is a mark of repentance. And when he comes, what's astonishing is that his father just embraces him, as he does, and wants to actually have a celebration, slay the fatted calf. The older brother just can't get his imagination around this concept having seen its effect probably, in my rereading, of what it's done in his father. And so he wants a pound of flesh taken out of his brother. You can't just come back and, you know, not only business as usual, but we're having a celebration. And I thought the older brother was right when I read that parable two years after what happened with my younger sister. Well, the brother's totally in the right, but the problem is it doesn't seem to be Jesus' interpretation of the parable. That's my one little problem. 
So I had to reconfigure my whole way of thinking about what the grace of God was, that I was really right alongside my sister, who I had previously distanced as being much worse than I was, but really in relation to God vertically, I was at no different place from where she was in relation to God. And God was as much, very much seeking me as a lost person that needed to be found as he was seeking my sister. I was no better. And that's when I began to understand in a deeper way the magnitude of God's love for me and the necessity of repentance because the father only says that the lost son is found when he comes back penitent. The one who was dead is now alive. The one who was lost is now found. What else do I want, the father said. That's everything I could have hoped for. That's all we're hoping for in this issue with regard to homosexual practice. We're not talking about taking a pound of flesh out of anybody. We're not talking about hating persons. We're talking about recovering people for the kingdom of God. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. What would you want someone to do for you if you were engaged in behavior that puts your relationship with God at great risk? You wouldn't want them to lord it over you. You wouldn't want them to beat you over the head. You wouldn't want them to hate you. You wouldn't want them to ostracize you, but you would want them to be a friend. And you would want them to come alongside you and gently but firmly speak to you the words that issue into life. Right? That's what it's about. And I will say parenthetically in closing that my sister would later grow up to be the strictest disciplinarian of all of us in relation to her children. So people do change, and they change because of the outreach of love that the people of God give to them, manifesting Jesus to them. So could we close? Could we have time for a song about he is able? Thank you for your patience, by the way. I realize that's a little over time.